Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Misty Copeland. Her book is Life in Motion. It's just out from Simon & Schuster. And she is the first African-American principal ballerina with the American Ballet Theater in, I guess it was about 20 years? Yes, soloist. Yes. Soloist. Yes. <laughs> and Life in Motion is a story of how she got to that path, including six years in the ABT's ballet corps and everything that happened before that. And it all starts in Southern California. And you were actually originally interested in gymnastics first, mm -hmm. the, the story goes. Yes. The first time I think I saw real movement on TV was uh, watching a Lifetime movie made about the gymnast Nadia Comaniche. And that was, that was where I first realized I felt a connection to movement and it was watching her doing the floor exercises and then I later realized that I didn't like gymnastics as much as I thought and that I really liked dancing so that's when I started kind of moving around the house and choreographing stuff to pop music. Later in middle school it sounds like you joined the drill team as, you, as your next step? Yes so um, once I discovered that I loved movement and dance I auditioned for the drill team at my middle school and I was made captain. Uh, I had no experience at all with dance. From there, the drill team coach, Elizabeth Cantine, saw that I had a lot of potential and she suggested that I take a ballet class at the Boys and Girls Club of San Pedro. And I pretty quickly left the drill team and started training intensely in classical ballet. But it took you a while to work up the nerve to, to do more than just sit at the like up against the back of the wall in the yes. ballet class, right? Yes. I was terribly shy, and I did not want to do anything that I felt uncomfortable with. So when Elizabeth told me to go to the ballet class, I didn't really know how to go about it. So I would just show up in the basketball gym and sit there. And I guess I needed someone to really take my hands and bring me to the, to the bar. And I think it took about a week before Cynthia Bradley, the teacher who was teaching there, physically took me and said, come and take this class. So that's what it, what it took to get me. And once you started taking part in the class, one of the things that fascinated me about your progress in your career is that, and these are my words, not yours, that you seem to have like the balletic equivalent of perfect pitch in, in a vocalist, <laughs> that it's like you are able to replicate movements Sort of like you see it and you can do it. Definitely in that beginning process of learning the ballet technique, that's exactly what I was doing. And I definitely was not aware that I was good or that that was a gift that other people didn't have. But that's just how I survived. That's how I was going to learn and not feel like I was going to make a fool of myself. So I literally would just stare and look at every single detailed thing that the teacher was doing or that the students around me were doing and mimic them. Them. And that's how I caught on to ballet. And I feel like I was doing that for, you know, the full four years that I trained before I became a professional. I was mimicking the people around me. You write about how you had a very perfectionist approach to that mimicry. Mm -hmm. And you talk a little bit in, in the memoir about how, it, you know, it was unconscious, but it seems like that perfectionism was related to what was going on in your home life at the time that you wanted some arena in which things could be perfect. Mm -hmm. It was my personality always that I just wanted everything to be okay. I was constantly on edge and such a nervous child. And all those 
odd qualities that made me so quirky in my life were like the best qualities to have as a ballerina, to be a perfectionist. But I just wanted to fit in. I didn't want people to know about my personal life at home that was really difficult. I was embarrassed about it. So yes, I was, I was constantly striving for perfection or to seem perfect on the outside. And I think you have to have those qualities to be a ballerina because it's so difficult and you'll never reach perfection, but that has to be the goal every morning. That struggle to, you know, wanting to keep your your private life private, particularly because it was so turbulent back then, unfortunately that blew up during your adolescence because your training was going so well that your teacher wanted to take you in one direction that basically involved taking you out of that turbulent environment. Mm-hmm. And there were reasons for and against that. On You know, both sides had really good arguments, but you were caught in the middle. Yeah, that was extremely traumatic for a 15-year-old to go through. For someone that, you know, was hiding so much about herself every day in school, to have it all put on television and all over the news and in every newspaper and to be in a courtroom, I think it scarred me in ways I didn't really know until I was an adult and a professional. And writing this memoir definitely helped me to kind of come to terms with it all and to really understand and to let go of any resentment I had and I think writing this, I just wanted to share what I learned from those experiences. Other than that desire, what was the impetus that you felt like this was the right time for you to be telling your story? I didn't know if it was the right time initially. From the time I you know, started dancing, I had people coming to me that were interested in my story because it was so uncommon. So I was being approached for my life movie and all of these things when I was 16. And I just thought, like, I have nothing to say. <laughs> I have nothing to share, really. And I, and I was very kind of protective of that. And I knew that it was something I would do eventually, but I thought it would be once I retired. So when Simon and & Schuster touched and approached me about doing this memoir, I really loved the idea and the direction it was going. And I felt that I'm in a really great place with a great platform to share my experience thus far. And I think it's really interesting to be sharing it while I'm still in the midst of my career and at a very critical point. I think it's really cool. And one of the critical points in that career that sort of starts off the memoir and you, you circle back to it at the end is that you were the first African-American soloist in any production, in any company, to play the Firebird mm-hmm. in the Firebird. And yes. that seems like a major milestone yeah. in the classical ballet world. It is. And I feel like at this point, any role that I get that's a principal role, it's going to be that way because it's just never been done before. You know, you have to give credit to, again, these women that have come before me. When I think of Janet Collins and Raven Wilkinson or even Arthur Mitchell, who's not a woman, but he was a black man that, you know, made huge strides in the classical ballet world and, of course, Dance Theater of Harlem. But at this level of, you know, elite ballet companies, it's never happened before. I thought it was very important to have Firebird be the pinnacle for the book. It was a career-defining moment for me and so special. It also turned out to be kind of a risky career-defining moment for Mm -hmm. you. You talk about how you pushed yourself to do it and then it turned out that you had multiple stress fractures Mm -hmm. from the intense rehearsals getting that just right. It was a very difficult process and you know American Ballet Theater is 
we're a touring company and we do so many productions at one time. So it's not like we're just focusing on one ballet. So while I was in the process of having Firebird created for me, I was also doing like 10 other ballets. So it was a grueling process and I was doing a lot of jumping and there just wasn't enough downtime for my body to kind of recover. And I knew that if I, you know, started to pull out of rehearsals that I might lose the opportunity to perform the role. And I think that I would have missed that window of opportunity of ever becoming a principal dancer. So I did. I pushed myself to dance through the pain and I ended up with six stress fractures and three of them were almost full breaks. And, you know, I don't regret it. And I had surgery and it was awful and, you know, traumatic, but it's made me a better dancer today. In talking about the milestones that you've accomplished, you also speak very frankly about how your background has been an impediment in, in some people's minds. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we certainly hear a lot in the ballet world about the debate over shape mm-hmm. in terms of like, oh, you know, this person just doesn't have the right shape for mm-hmm. these parts. And skin color, you talk about as another way that even if it's not overt racism, people just don't seem, and we see this in like acting roles that mm-hmm. people are like, oh, well, I never really thought of putting mm-hmm. that person in that part. It just yeah. never seemed, seemed to fit. And yeah. that's something that even when it's meant benignly, it still hurts to, to, to butt up against that. It's been really difficult. For me, maturing and hitting puberty at such a late age is a lot of ballet dancers experience it was really hard to sort of become curvy once I had already been a professional dancer but you know I saw other dancers around me who were white but who had a bust and who were curvy so it was it was hard for me to accept being told that I needed to lose weight or that I was to this and to that but they would never say that you had to lose weight no, <laughs> was it was always like we need to work on your li- lengthen <laughs> yes that it was going to ruin my line but yeah, it's it's extremely difficult to deal with, but is even if it's a subconscious thing because the ballet world has always been this way, there is racism and and it's hard for people to see something different. And I love the history of ballet and the tradition and I would never want to change that. But I think that people need to expand their views and know that just as an acting, you're playing a role in a character and that can be any color. And in your case, you've been lauded for years for your contemporary performances mm-hmm. And you've been saying all along, that's like, or you talk about working up the courage to say, you know what, I can do the classical roles. Yeah. Give me a shot at these. Yeah. When you're in a company's largest American ballet theater with 80 dancers, you don't come into a company as a young dancer and get a shot to do a leading classical role immediately. So an easier way to break you into doing leading roles is to go the contemporary route. So that's where I was pushed immediately. And they saw that I was really good at it. So they felt like I was kind of being put in this position that I didn't want to get stuck in. I saw myself as a ballerina always, and it took me years to be able to say to the artistic staff, remember I'm a ballerina. I trained as a classical dancer. I didn't train in any other form of dance, but it took a lot for me to say that, And but I'm happy I did. The great thing about that story is that when you finally came out and said that, your director was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You know, again, when you're dealing with a company of 80 and so many gifted dancers, you have to show them that you want it. They're not going to take you by the hand and, you know, and baby you and, and push you into doing something. They have so many things to think about. Kevin has got so much on his mind and he's dealing with so many personalities. You have to tell him, this is what I want. This is what I need. 
because you can't think about every single person individually that way. One of the other things about your time at ABT, particularly at the very beginning, that struck me was talking about that point in your training where, as you say, in San Pedro, you had this really great mimicry effect where you could could duplicate motions. And then ABT basically sort of looked at what was going on and said, it's like, okay, you know, you've got all these motions, but we need to go back and work on the fundamentals Mm -hmm. so that you really sort of grasp what it is that you're doing here, not just imitating it. I felt like I was really faking it (laughs) until I made it. And that process continued even once I joined ABT. And I think that as dancers, we're constantly recreating ourselves. And I'm fine to get into the studio and relearn how to do things, even at age 31. But yeah, that was a hard process to, to feel like I didn't have it all under control. You know, ABT wanted to see a more clarity in my in my work and my technique, and for me to really understand and take more seriously the roles I was doing and the way I was approaching things, because it was so easy for me. I felt like there needed to be more weight, and for me to to look like it was not so easy and not so light. You still spend time. Pretty much every day, at least as much as possible in the practice studio, mm-hmm. refining that technique, right? Yeah, so I was up at 8.30 a.m. this morning in a ballet class because I didn't have any other time to do it today. That's how it is as a dancer. class. You know, being in class, that's how you fine-tune your instrument. That's how we keep it, our technique up to par and keep it clear. And there's also something that's so serene about taking a ballet class for me. It's always been an escape from my daily life. It's like no one can reach me here. I'm in the class and and I'm, and I'm enjoying myself. But yes, as dancers, we have to be in class almost every day just to keep our technique up to par so that when we get on stage, it's second nature. And you can think about all the other millions of things that come into play when you're on stage. You know, they talk in golf about how when they need to fix their swing, they literally sort of like break it down. Mm -hmm. into every single micro gesture and maybe tweak like one little thing and then try to put it all back together is that how a complex ballet move exactly yes that was very well put that's exactly how we approach things you know if something's not working if a turn you know we're we say off our leg meaning we're literally off our leg we're not standing on it and balanced we break it down like that's what the mirrors are there for that's what the teacher or your coach your ballet mistress or ballet master is there for to literally study your body and see what's off kilter that's why you we rehearse and we're in class as much as possible so that when we're on stage we can find that balance when we're not on balance. So you have to know your body so well. Outside of the ballet world, one of your most notable appearances as a dancer was, well, you've done a couple different projects with Prince. Mm -hmm. And and how did that come about? You know, to this day, I still really don't know how he heard about me or found out about me, but I was contacted by a close friend of mine who said Prince's people had called her because they knew that she knew me and that they were trying, he was trying to reach me. But yeah, he just said he was a big fan and he wanted me to be a part of a music video that he was filming. And within days, I was in Los Angeles filming the remake of Crimson and Clover that he did. And then from there, you know, we stayed in touch and I ended up touring with them through Europe. And then, of course, his Welcome to America tour, I was a part of that entire creative process. It was amazing. And I feel like he really got me to step outside of my comfort zone and to really just learn more about myself as an artist. 
that was an amazing period of time. And it also seems like it was a powerful opportunity for you to at least attempt to make ballet a little bit more accessible mm -hmm. to, to wider audiences yeah. than might show up at like Lincoln Center or, yeah. or wherever. Yeah, it's amazing to this day when I have people come up to me and say, the first time I ever saw you or heard of you was at Prince concert and I'd never seen ballet before and now I'm a fan. And I'm like, yes, that's what I wanted. And it's amazing. And, it, and you know, for them to see ballet in a different light and that it can be cool and that a brown-skinned, curvy girl can do it as well, and she could do it to rock music. <laughs> so what are some of the big parts that you have been working on since Firebird? Well, I just premiered principal role in Tokyo in the ballet called Manon, and it's the part of the mistress. Um, so that was a really big deal for me to do. I will premiere the principal role in Coppelia in a couple of weeks in Abu Dhabi, and it's the part of Swanilda. So this is the first time I am doing a full-length three-act ballet as the lead, not the second lead, and Firebird is not a full three-act ballet. So this is a really big deal and a huge stepping stone for my career. Also a little nerve-wracking because I'm still very much so being tested. And these are the tests that, you know, you have to be put through to see if you are capable of being a principal dancer. What are, or are these the, you know, the dream roles, the yeah. ones that when you first went on the path to becoming a ballerina, what were the roles where you're like, this is what it's going to, what the pinnacle is going to look like? Kitri and Don Quixote, Odette O'Dill and Swan Lake, Giselle and Juliet, which I've never done any of them at ABT. But to me, those are all iconic roles that make you a ballerina. Having told your story here, do you, how, I mean, I guess now that you've got the memoir out, how did that feel? I mean, do you feel like, oh, I could do another one? <laughs> I don't think it's really hit me yet, but the process was very, I don't know, it just helped me to accept and understand so many parts of myself and my family and all the people in my life. I definitely would do it again. In terms of timing, was this something that you were working on while you were recovering from the surgery post-Firebird? Yes, which I think was, was great because I was very open and emotional at that time. And I think it allowed me to kind of delve into parts of myself that I might not have if I were in rehearsals and working and not have gone through an injury. It was perfect timing to start writing it. Well, the results are really moving and really eye-opening. Thank you. I have been talking with Misty Copeland about her memoir from Simon & Schuster Touchstone. It's Life in Motion. You have been listening to Life Stories, and if you are subscribed to this podcast on iTunes, I thank you for that. If you're not subscribed on iTunes, it's very easy to do. And once you do that, I hope you might take a moment to rate and review the podcast, which will make it even easier for the next person to find. I'm Ron Hogan, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode soon. Thanks, and take care.